Hello, and you're listening to The Dollop. This is an American history podcast uh, in which each week I, Dave Anthony, read a story to... Gareth Reynolds, who has no idea what the topic is about. Did you forget your part? No, but I think you say you've called me your friend in the past. So. Oh, I didn't say that? No. Whatever. I guess we're on icy ground now. And the friendship endeth here. <laughs> it's an awkward time to end it. <laughs> God, you want to look at a dude? I'll do one bottle. <laughs> people say this is funny? Not Gary Gareth. Dave, okay. Someone or something is tickling people. Is it for fun? And this is not going to become the Tickling Podcast. Okay. You are Queen Fakie of Made Up Town. All hail Queen Shit of Liesville. A bunch of religious virgins go to mingle. And do what? Pray. Gary. No. Nicely done, my friend. No. No. <laughs> okay. 1848. Oh, boy. America. Yeah. Almond D. Fisk. Almond D. Fisk. Someone named their child Almond. Because he's nuts. Either that or there was an autocorrect that I didn't notice. Oh. <laughs> Fuck. I think that either's could have happened. Either's okay. Because Almond's a pretty fucked up name for yeah. a, uh, oh, you're a young <laughs> Although, Almond. but not in that time. Yeah, it could have no. totally could have This is my almond. boy Tree Trunk. Yeah, it's totally reasonable. Who gives a fuck? Here's Walnut. <laughs> Here's my boy Walnut. So Almond D. Fisk was granted the first patent for a cast iron coffin called the Fisk Airtight Coffin or Cast Arrays Metal okay. in 1848. Okay. Uh, in 1849, the cast iron coffin was publicly unveiled at the New York State Agriculture Society Fair in Syracuse, New York. Must have it's a great fair. Time. It's a great fair. Yeah. yeah. Who doesn't want to go to the coffin exhibit at the fair? I do wonder how it was received, though, because in this time, you can't be sure how people, if people be like, well, a weirdo, what? or if people are like, oh, my goodness, it's the heart of luxury. Holy, look at that casket. It's I wanna, airtight. I want to die in there right now. Pistachio, will you buy me it for our anniversary? You're darn right I will, Dorothy. <laughs> Known as the Fisk Mummy, this metal coffin was a little eerie because it was shaped like a corpse wrapped in a burial shroud. It's interesting. Basically resembling an Egyptian sarcophagus with sculpted arms and had a glass window to do the... To, to view the face of the cadaver. Okay, well, that is terrible. That's what? just totally terrifying. No, it's... Oh, it's totally the worst idea ever. It's a winder. Yeah, you don't want a winder just for in the, the face. decomposing. Yeah, no. Just for the face. Yeah, the, yeah, you'd rather the chest. So you look down and the eyes are looking right back up yeah, at you? Yeah, the dead eyes as it's starting to yeah. erode in the yeah. ground. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, was that a tear? Hey, neighbor. Um... The uh, but the but the the glass window could be covered with a metal plate when the coffin was ready for burial. So when you're going to throw the when you're throw the dirt on the top, you'd put a little metal cover What's on top. What's the point? Of, there's no point. In. Whoever, yeah, there's no Close point in that. Close the shutter. No point in that. You're going to be throwing dirt well, you on it. You don't want the dead guy to be knowing he's okay. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Uh, Fisk added uh, accents like drapery, rosewood, and silk fringe to lessen its disturbing impact on prospective buyers. Well, that is just so. If you're adding curtains to a coffin, mm -hmm. you've made a disturbing coffin, and it's time to redo it. I don't know. Curtains are pretty nice. <laughs> okay, that's when he's just over ordered. He's like, God, I ordered a thousand of these. Let's just put drapes on the inside. Some blinds. <laughs> the cast iron coffins were popular in the mid-1800s among wealthier families. In response to high demand, Fisk established the Fisk and Raymond Company and began production in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, 
while pine coffins in the 1850s would have a cost of around $2, uh-huh. a Fisk coffin would command a price upwards of $100. Okay. Wow. Nonetheless, the metallic coffins were greatly desired by the more affluent individuals and families for their potential to deter grave robbers. <laughs> I just love how it's all to avoid really having your body taken out of the ground by creeps. It seems like almost everything <laughs> in the 1800s was about trying to stop people from picking up. Because up until then, it's like, I would just pay the $2. But once you hear like, oh, it's, to, it's an investment in keeping your body in the ground instead of just like taken and done with whatever they want. In order to keep up with demand, Fisk additionally licensed the right to manufacture the uh, the coffins to two larger firms. The design and materials were chosen because of their ability to protect the body and prevent decomposition so that it could endure transportation or delayed internment. But for what purpose? Oh, we'll get to that. Oh. The airtight cases... Oh, by were- the way, horrible answer. That's the classic dollop answer. Yeah, but it's still terrifying. <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to it. There's a reason, is yeah. what you're saying, which is troubling. The airtight cases were valued for their potential to preserve the remains of indi- individuals who died far from home. Oh, okay. Okay? Okay. According to Fisk's 1848 patent, quote, from a coffin of this description, the air may be exhausted so completely as entirely to prevent the decay of the contained body on principles well understood. Or, if preferred, the coffin may be filled with any gas or fluid having the property of preventing petrification. So it's kind of like Tupperware for a corpse. Yep, that's exactly what it is. It's corpse Tupperware. (laughs) There we go. It's corpseware. I could watch you drink from that weird glass all day. (laughs) (laughs) You gave it to me. In 1849, Fisk's foundry on Long Island in New York burned down. Along with all of the company's machinery, tools, and inventory, Fisk borrowed 15000 from two investors, John G. Forbes and Horace White. Horace White was the governor of New York. So all would be fine until Fisk's health declined the next year. He then transferred all of his patents and his business to Forbes and White. Fisk died on October 1850. Turns out from an illness he contracted while fighting the blaze. Oh, wow. Okay. Did you enjoy that dollop? Please. This isn't my first rodeo, asshole. Other companies like Crane Breed and Company of Cincinnati and W.N. Raymond and Company of New York and Chicago were granted licenses to produce cast iron coffins. These companies introduced modified versions that replaced the sarcophagus shape with a rectangular casket and simplified the design so it could be mass produced. The models were popular during the Civil War with wealthy families who wanted their loved ones killed in battle to be buried near the family home. Okay. Well, that's good. It's smart. I mean, the mummy factor was probably not like making it a hot item. Throws you off a little bit. The mummy part. (laughs) You know? Yeah. That's a guy who's like, I've got two ideas. Let's do both. You're like, well. (laughs) The Battle of Nashville, the Civil War was in its waning months. The North's superior industrial strength and never-ending supply of manpower had taken their toll on the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Everything was going downhill for the rebels. The Union was now concentrating almost all of its force against the, quote, other rebel army, the Army of Tennessee. This army was the last hope for the South. It was led by General John H. Bell Hood, who at this time was physically beaten and an emotionally unstable man. I can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta have the weight of the world on your shoulders when you're like, come on, slavery! 
He had lost the use of one arm at Gettysburg and lost a leg at the Battle of Chickamauga. Hey, this man should not be involved in war anymore. (laughs) Once you're down two limbs, you're out. He had to literally be strapped to his horse to travel. Oh, my God. What? He's in charge. (laughs) All right. Everyone listen to the man who's hanging underneath his pony. Tie the general to the bottom of the horse. Excuse me. <laughs> you help me, help me. Don't embarrass me. Move, move, move. I would yell charge, but I have rolled over to the bottom of the horse. Could you push me back <laughs> atop and tie me down harder? Which is where the song Tie Me Down Harder came from. No, the law. no, Johnson cannot tie the knots again. <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. I didn't realize how limbless he was. <laughs> Hood was a student of the old school method of fighting. Thought, <laughs> Which you didn't need arms. <laughs> thought the only honorable way to attack was head on with banners flying. Ugh, well, that was that, that was guy. that wasn't the game the Civil War was playing. Those guys always did well in the Civil War. <laughs> yeah. Hood was said to have associated valor with casualty lists. In the Battle of Franklin on November 30th, 1864, in one day's fighting, he suffered 6,202 casualties. Holy shit. In no other... I didn't know there were so many people. <laughs> in no other battle did any army have so many generals killed and wounded. Jesus. Five Confederate generals were killed outright, six were wounded, one of which soon died, and one was captured. So he sounds like a terrible uh, leader. Yeah. All right. We're going to attack them where they can see us. Okay, General's out front. (laughs) Hood was ready for more the next day, only to discover the Union forces had snuck away during the night for Nashville. Hood pursued. His troops were sick, worn down, and many were barefoot. Ugh. That's how you want to fight a war. No, that's not even how you want to be in Die Hard. No (laughs) (laughs) shit. Let alone a fucking actual war. Nashville was heavily fortified. When Hood arrived, his troops were attacked. Many ran away, some held out, and fought the hopeless battle. Small pockets of resistance fought for a couple of days. One of these was the, was the 20th Tennessee under the command of Colonel William M. Shy. They were positioned on Compton's Hill. William Mabry Shy was born in Bourbon, Kentucky, Bourbon County, Kentucky, on May 24, 1838. He was one of 10 children. His older brother, James Shy, organized the Perry Guards, which became... Company G of the 20th Tennessee Infantry. I thought so. William, or Bill, as he was properly known (laughs) by his comrades, enlisted as a pirate and private in Company H of the 20th Tennessee on its inceptions. In the spring, after the Battle of Fishing Creek, he was elected a lieutenant. He was known to be uh, have been a man of quiet disposition, a man of deeds rather than words. He was modest and gentle, always calm and collected in battle. He quickly rose the ranks. From captain in 1862 to major in 1863, then lieutenant colonel while leading his men through the battles of Shiloh, Port Hudson, Murfsboro, Hoover Gap, Missionary Ridge, Atlanta, and finally Nashville, where he was colonel of the 20th. Right. It's good. Yeah. He's got a good res, good res going. Does he have a headshot? Uh, yep. Great. On Compton's Hill, he found himself surrounded by three sides by thousands of Union soldiers receiving fire from all angles. Around 4 p.m., it began to rain. The men had not slept in days. They were tired, cold, wet, hungry, but still they fought on. Suddenly, the massive federal attack began. There were just a few minutes of violent fighting, and then it was all over. They came so fast with so many that the small force atop the hill was completely overwhelmed. The entire command of defenders was annihilated. Only 65 individuals escaped. 
Colonel William M. Shy was killed. Compton Hill would later be renamed Shy Hill in his honor. The Battle of Nashville was over. Are you I, sad? It's not. A, it's not an easy time for me. Well, hold on. When is, word of, is something about to happen, David? He's going to come back to life. <laughs> Shut up! He's got adrenaline. <laughs> <laughs> when word of Colonel Shy's death reached his family, it is unknown how it was received because his mother sympathized with the South. Oh and my his God. father sympathized with the North. Uh, that, and this is like, this, is, so this isn't awkward. like a, a Republican and a Democrat. This no. is like, I'm glad my son died. That'll teach dad, him to be wrong. Yeah. The dad was like, that's right. Damn right we killed our son. Yeah. You take that, mama. What'd I tell you? Our boy's dad. Good. He was on the wrong side. I told you so. I told you so. <clears throat> Being unmarried, the chore of recovering his body fell to his parents. But it was almost impossible for a civilian to get permission to travel the roads because the pursuit of the fleeing Confederate army after the Battle of Nashville, right? So they're fucking scurrying everywhere. Yeah. So the Shy family solicited the help of their close friend, Dr. Daniel B. Cliff, who held a very influential position in the community. Dr. Cliff made arrangements for his wife, Mrs. Virginia Cliff, to go to Nashville to recover Colonel Shy's body. But where is his body? I mean, his body is it's just... That, it's on that mountain. Still. It's on that. They it's gotta, on Compton Hill. Yeah, they're like, he's dead. You want to pick him up? Yeah. Or, you know, we'll leave him there or whatever. Take out or delivery. What are you after? <laughs> Do you want to come and get her or let her rot? Uh, you got two options. Uh, also, you can't come. You got to send somebody else who's more important. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can't just go take a body. You can't just go running around. In this around. day and age. I love that he sends his wife. Yeah. Apparently she. Well, can she was the it. one who she was the one who was grieving. He was too busy gloating. He was on the. Oh no! Boat. This is the doc. The doctor sent his wife. Oh, the doctor yeah. sent his wife. Yeah, the doctor sent okay. his wife. Now, no one knows uh, why he sent his lady. Maybe it was because <laughs> he's a pussy. He thought he thought that's what chivalry was. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Ladies first. Go pro- get it. <laughs> probably he was attending to wounded because of the war. From a uh, newspaper report at the time. Virginia Whitfield Cliff took a spring wagon with a Negro man to drive and brought his body home. This privilege was accorded her by because of Dr. Cliff's connection with the North. Mrs. Cliff found him without a stitch of clothing on, shot through the center of his forehead, and impaled on a tree with a bayonet. Jesus. So he got really killed. Yeah. Like he got like double killed. Yeah, they were like, be sure. Light him on fire, too. <laughs> Take out his eyes. Take his eyes and heart out. Colonel Shy was brought home and laid to rest in the family cemetery at Two Rivers near Franklin, Tennessee. Dr. Cliff was skilled in the art of embalming. Shy was buried in the family graveyard, and the marker still stands, a white shaft in a cow lot. Excuse me? You heard me. A white shaft in a cow lot? You betcha. Sounds like a Scottish farmer. (laughs) There were eight members of the Shy family buried in the graveyard in the 1800s and 1900s. Is there any? Is there any appeal to that? To having you're burying everybody being like your dead body near people you knew and were related to. It's a little weird. I mean, to me, I'm I like, don't need anybody buried in the backyard. Yeah, I kind of, I would just rather go to my own thing. Yeah, you know, there's a place you go to. Yeah, just be and off yeah, of my yeah. own area. Yeah. I don't need anyone I know yeah. around watching no. me decompose. No, it's all weird. Uh, the bayonet and, can- and and the canteen of Colonel Shy are still in the possession of his family. The grave of Colonel Shy lay peacefully behind the beautiful antebellum home on the Rio Del Rio Pike for over a hundred years. On December twenty eighth, nineteen seventy seven, Ben. Wait, and- <laughs> that's amazing because that's quite a jump. Well, I did make a time jump. Okay, we did. 
December 24th, 1977, Ben and Mary Griffith had recently purchased the antebellum estate. Oh, boy. While Miss Griffin was showing the mansion and grounds to a friend on Christmas Eve, she noticed that one of the plots had been disturbed. Oh, no. The gravestone's heading bore the following inscription. Lieutenant Colonel William Shy, 20th Tennessee Infantry, CSA born May 24th, 1838. Killed at the Battle of Nashville, December 16th, 1864. The Griffiths immediately called the sheriff's department. Since the sheriffs didn't consider this an emergency because he believed that would-be grave robbers dug up the plot to steal Civil War memorabilia, he waited until after Christmas to investigate. <laughs> That's some good, go ahead and take a hold on that. Some there. good police work right there, boy. You know what? They ain't going nowhere. No, Come they on. are going somewhere. Come on. Nobody, nobody does anything on Christmas. It's a holiday. Come on now. When the sheriff returned on December 29th and inspected the grave, he discovered a headless, decomposed body dressed in a formal black jacket, white shirt, and white gloves. The investigators at the site agreed that this was the body of a recent homicide victim. Oh, Jesus. In an advanced state of decay. Their theory was that a murderer or murderers had attempted to hide the victim's body in plain sight by burying it in a used plot but got scared off by Mrs. Griffith and her guest in the middle of disposing of the corpse. So they, it was a recently killed person that they decided to hide in the tomb, but then they ran away because... Right, they were burying a body. I like their plan. It's a good plan. From the fundamental aspect, I do think that is a... It's a fair fair idea. Nobody's going to be looking in a grave for a body. Right. Honestly. Solid plan. Yeah. Local authorities would not match, uh, could not match the headless corpse with any of their missing person reports. Wild theories abounded. Some even speculated that the head might have been removed to hamper the identification of the body. Since the sheriff's department needed help identifying the body and estimating the time of death, they asked forensic anthropologist Dr. William M. Bass of the University of Tennessee at Knoxville to help with the recovery and analysis of the remains. Okay. Excerpts from the uh, local paper, the Franklin, December 21st, 1977. That can't be right. Williamson County authorities investigating the tampering of a Civil War soldier's grave discovered that a second body had been placed in the grave probably within the last year. The body is an adult male clad in what appeared to be a tuxedo. The body of Colonel Shy in its steel vault was undisturbed, officials said. Nashville Banner. December 31st, 1977. It looks like we have a homicide on our hands, said Chief Deputy Fleming Williams. Yeah, it's not a suicide. (laughs) Dr. Bass arrived and a more thorough search turned up the head and other missing body parts. Oh, my God. It was reported the body was found in a sitting position and then it had been dead for six months. Ah. As Bass excavated what what was left of the body, he found a small hole in the top of the coffin possibly caused by a pick or a shovel. When Bass looked inside the metal coffin, he found nothing but sludge, which didn't surprise him. He had exhumed a 19th century cemetery in Tennessee and found little more than small bone fragments. Sludge? So what he found was Colonel Shy. Yeah, but sludge? Yeah, but that's what happens to bodies. They turn into sludge? Sure. Have you ever seen CSI uh, Las Vegas? Never seen CSI Las Vegas, but I, I was under the impression that we were just becoming... Bones. We weren't becoming a no, sludge. Some, if you're like in a in a tightly, if you're like in a body bag, if you're or in one of the fancy ones. Well, if, yeah, if you're in something that doesn't let air in or out, then you'll turn into like a, a juicy sort of. So who would want that? Mix. Do you want to be juice? Maybe I don't know. Juice is Ugh. good. 
You want to be grave soup? I might want to be juice. Well, this is, I think we found a very key difference. <laughs> Bass examined the bones back in his laboratory. According to his osteological analysis, the remains belonged to a white male in his mid-20s to early 30s. was about 5'10". Due to the presence of pink tissue and decomposing uh, tissue, Bass believed that this person had only been dead between 6 and 12 months. Sheriff's investigators discovered 17 fragments of skull during an additional inspection of the coffin. When Bass glued them back together, he found that the cause of death was a gunshot wound to the head with a large caliber gun at close range. The entrance wound was in the right, the forehead right above the left eye, and the exit wound was near the base of the skull. Now, during the Battle of Nashville, Shy was shot at point-blank range with a 58 caliber ball to the head. Dr. Bass began to suspect that he had made a huge error in the timeline of death. When the teeth were examined, he discovered that many of them had cavities, but there were no signs of modern dental care, such as fillings. Then the clothes were examined, and there were no synthetic fibers and labels, labels things that are typically seen in modern garments. Also, uh, it was a ruffled shirt and a black tuxedo coat and white gloves. <laughs> Like, you know, in the 18-fucking-hundreds. Bass determined that the body no, was 113 years old. <laughs> so, wait. He realized... That's a bad calculation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... What? Just off a little bit. Six months to 113 years. I mean... Easily, you know... A tu- like, what? A tuxedo. <laughs> Well, this is pretty open and shut. <laughs> he realized the body belonged to William Shy, and it had been pulled out through the small hole in the lid while looters were trying to rob the grave. Dr. Bass told the Nashville Banner, I got the age, sex, race, height, and weight right, but I was off on the time of death by 113 years. That's really being, like, really... Like, that's really kind of putting a shine on a turd right there, right? I mean, you know, I got the sex right. I got the... Uh, the height was correct. How do you get the height wrong? I nailed everything. How do you get the height wrong on a corpse? I nailed everything. Except the, the one... Right. Except the one thing that I'm actually good at. Except for the thing that maybe you can't just do based on vision. Dr. Bass reflected on how he could have miscalculated the time since uh, death by more than 100 years. There was embalming fluid, arsenic, present in the flesh. Though embalming does not preserve human remains, a body will not stay uncorrupted forever because embalming fluids only delay the inevitable process of decomposition. Okay. Colonel Colonel Shai's corpse was protected from oxygen inside his hermetically sealed coffin. The Fisk coffin was also constructed to prevent bacteria, a necessary part of putrefaction, from flourishing. And the metal coffin protected the body from insects, which can burrow through wood coffins and feast on human remains. Wait. It's the Fisk coffin. The coffin made him... Between the embalming fluid and the Fisk coffin, he was just like a dude hanging out. He was just, he could have fucking opened it up and looked in that little window and he would have been like, hey, what's up? I think you just sold me on the fist coffin. What's up, girl? <laughs> I do that forever. You're like, what's going on? <laughs> the case and its errors made international headlines and lent to But an- didn't they know that he got the height right? <laughs> <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> 
The case and its errors made international headlines and led to an innovation in forensic anthropology. Dr. Bass believed that his error was caused by a lack of understanding of what happens to the body during decomposition. So it was the Colonel Shy case that motivated Dr. Bass to start the anthropological research facility at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, better known as the Body Farm. The Body Farm is a research facility where human decomposition can be studied in a variety of settings. The research facility opened up in 1980 to provide a setting for forensic anthropologists to document post-mortem changes and to experiment with factors that affect time since death estimates. It consists of a 2.5... Hey, what kind of business are you guys opening up? <laughs> we live on the plot next door. Yeah, we opening up a body farm. Okay. So we just go and throw bodies out here and see how, how quick they rot and stuff. Let me get my husband. What kind of place you got over there? We raise chickens. Dale! <laughs> Dale! <laughs> Come meet these zombie folks. Probably better if your chickens don't come over here. Okay. You know, we ain't going to have a fence. We're just going to put up a line. I'm walking away <laughs> to signify that this conversation is done. Okay, well, if you die, just go ahead and fall this okay, way. I'm, I'm slowly turning my walk into a trot. Trotting away now. It consists of a 2.5-acre wooded plot surrounded by a razor wire fence. At any one time, there are a number of bodies placed in different settings throughout the facility and left to decompose. Uh, what the fuck is this place? What? The, b- <laughs> the, the bodies are exposed in a number of ways in order to provide insights into decomposition under varying conditions. Detailed observation and records of the decomposition process are kept, including the sequence and speed of decomposition and the effects of insect activity. But who gives, honestly, who gives a fuck? It's the fucking people who try to determine how long a body's been But somewhere. who gives a fuck? Because you have to know when a person died if they got murdered. But you know, I mean, how much, how, is this, is this a big enough problem that we need a body farm? I mean, I would say no, This but, is not the 1800s a, when people are getting robbed all the time. But a I body mean, farm is just fun. It's not fun. I think it's fun. Oh, God. My son has a body farm. Oh, come on, kids, we're going to the body farm. Wait, that's an ant farm. <laughs> My son has an yeah. The body farm received its first donation in 1981, and over 100 bodies are donated each year to the facility. I mean, that's people, fucking bananas. People are like, I want my body to rot outside. Oh, yeah, I want to be tossed. I want to be looked at while I just <laughs> shred. While I slowly shred. I want to hang from a tree till I'm gone. Do whatever you want, and honestly, guys, I mean this. If any of you want to fuck me, just have at it. I don't even give a fuck. I'm here for you guys. Over a thousand bodies have been, Jesus. Have been given to the body farm. Ugh. Today there are six body farms in the United States. Oh, I'm glad to see they're franchising. There uh, is the University of Tennessee, Texas State University, Sam Houston uh, State University, Southern Illinois, Colorado Mesa, and the University of California University of Pennsylvania. California University of Pennsylvania. Boy, that's got to be confusing when you get in there. You're yeah, like, where the not... fuck am I headed? I'm going to California. No. This is the California University. No, of Pennsylvania. It's a what? The campus is in Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the California University of Pennsylvania campus in Iowa. Welcome to the clarification course. 
<laughs> Earlier this year, the Fox Valley Technical College in Wisconsin announced they would open their own body Good. farm. Thanks, Wisconsin. Work uh, will begin on a new body farm near Yarramundi on the outskirts of Sydney, Australia in 2015 on a patch of land owned by wait, the University will we of be Technology there? Sydney. Will we be there? Oh, I hope so. I want to I hope so. We could do a fun sort of dollop body farm time. <laughs> if you go to the body farm yeah. half price. Half price body farm day. Half power, half price. Uh, that's gonna that's gonna be the first body farm outside the United States. Oh well, it's, I'm glad to see. Unless, of course, you're including Campuchia or uh, any of the other places where people were slaughtered. Oh yeah, well we're not on Monday the thirteenth. On Monday the thirteenth, on February in February 1978, a cold rain was falling. The service was brief. There was no drum roll or rifle salute. Six civilian-dressed members of the Sons of the Confederacy carried the great coffin to its resting place. Members of the DAC were also on hand with Confederate flags, and one was placed on the grave. The Reverend Charles Fulton of St. Paul's Episcopal Church said a, said a short eulogy over the shy coffin. Mrs. Montana praised Franklin's historical community for its warmth and sincerity. She remarked, I guess he could have been put back in the ground in a pine box, but the people of Franklin gave him a very warm ceremony. And <laughs> Colonel William Shy was buried a second That's time. all she had? Yeah, that's all she had. <laughs> she really did not stuff it up. Well, all. they didn't set him on fire. Well, he's still sort of here, but he isn't. We validate. Anyway, that's how the body farm came to be. Jesus Christ. You are welcome. Ugh. Yeah, good. No, disgusting. I mean, on it, like... I just don't see much advantage to. I, I, there's if someone if you're like if you're if, if someone you knew got killed and they'd been out there for six months, they can figure out exactly when it happened and then start. But six months, we know what we're dealing with. What do you mean? Like, we, like we don't need. With? Like we basically know like what the deco- the decomposition rate it probably is. We just don't need. What a if fl- someone is in some crazy coffin? But we, are those happening? I mean, the only thing now is you're getting buried. Like, like weirdos will be like, I want to be buried in a kiss coffin. Like, that's what we're dealing with now is like vanity coffins. Wait a minute, a kiss coffin? Yeah, there's a kiss coffin. Is- are you shocked by that? Yeah, kiss, kiss merchandise is everything. <laughs> are you shitting me? For a hundred bucks, Gene Simmons will come and lick your doorknob. Have I mean, they don't give a fuck. Kiss body farm? Oh, God. <laughs> it's different. It's People are like, all... so we can kiss them? No, no. It's all Paul Stanley's. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, that was the uh, a kiss body farm. I'd go to. I would go to that too. That I'd go to. If you were like after you die, you get you become a member of Kiss. I'd be like, fuck, that sounds yeah. better. Uh, thanks to Betsy Phillips for this suggestion. That was a good one. Um, that's it. That's the end of the small up. Well, we tried. Okay, we tried. Sure, 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 sure. Oh, hey there, everybody. It's Gareth. You know from this. Uh, this podcast. Uh, listen, I've got some stand-up shows. I'm inviting the Garmy, the Gareth Army, to join me for. I will be in Fort Collins, Colorado, August 18th and August 19th. I will be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, August 24th through August 26th at Acme. I will be going to the UK in September. Please join me. I will be in Glasgow, September 13th, London, September 15th, Dublin, September 17th, and September 19th, Manchester, Birmingham, September 20th, 
Bristol September 22nd and Cardiff September 24th and then in November I'll be in Australia November 10th almost sold out I think I'll be in Melbourne Australia then I will be in Northbridge Australia on November 15th Adelaide November 16th Canberra November 17th Brisbane November 18th and then I will be in uh, Sydney on November 24th go to GarethReynolds.com for tickets Garmy let's get at it after it let's see you there hey there people listening to the dollop uh this is gareth yes the same guy i listen i have a new podcast called we're here to help that i'm doing with my friend jake johnson it's basically a call and advice show where we don't say that we're professionals because we aren't but we try to help people with problems that are important to them you can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts and it is out right now so go listen to we're here to help with Jake and Gareth. We're here to help with Gareth and Jake. I don't remember how we did it, but either way, fun. Half Hour comes out Tuesday, August 22nd, and the episodes will be out every Tuesday and Friday. We're here to help. 